0: Tell me when we're on. Okay. We're on.
1: Why don't you uh, take one of these and pass them around? We're about four or five short. So almost everybody could have their own, but a couple people have to share.
0: So listen, Jeff, I thought we would do three things, two things, at least, and maybe three, and tell me what what in what order you want to do it. Uh, you could uh, clearly you brought a teaching to teach. You could teach your teaching first. Uh, how many people would like to know how did a, uh, a Milwaukee born rabbi uh, get to be one of the three rabbis who was a graduate of the dedicated practitioners program at Spirit Rock? Uh, that How did you get to be who you are? I mean there are three rabbis who uh, have graduated from a DPP program, uh, you and Sheila.? <laughs> You find that interesting? Uh, Sheila Weinberg, uh, Joanna, Jeff Roth, and Joanna Katz, Jeff's wife, went through the dedicated practitioners program. They are clearly rabbis. People might like to know how come rabbis go to dedicated practitioner programs and study. uh, uh, When you go in, you see a room full of 100 people all sitting on the floor leafing through pages of the Majima Nikaya. So you might want to talk about how you got to be here. And uh, you might want to teach, and uh, anything else you want to do, what would you like to do, and in what order?
1: Um, I thought I wanted to start with uh, one particular piece of teaching that's related to the page I've passed out uh, that has to do I think with the question the person was asking in some ways implicitly or explicitly in that email, and that is uh, if. If you grew up as part of a religious practice or a religious tradition, uh, and, you, and then you encounter the teachings that uh, we learn here at Spirit Rock and mindfulness practice, and the teachings of the Buddha, uh, how do, what happens to in your uh, religion of origin? What happens to uh, uh, maybe in essence all the beliefs that come along with that uh, yeah. practice? Uh, with your, and so I thought I wanted to start talking a little bit about uh, the difference between belief and uh, where, where belief fits in altogether, mm-hmm. and uh, the specific thing that I thought we might address, if, if we might think about various religious traditions, and the Buddhist tradition is the particular belief in God, uh, which is a, uh, which at least on some level is a belief. Uh, and when I first started, uh, I was already a rabbi when I first started uh, sitting at Spirit Rock. Uh, I. I started sitting here mostly because I uh, met Sylvia and uh, uh, I actually invited Sylvia to teach at a retreat center that I was running, a Jewish spiritual retreat center, and um, that's where I heard her uh, really expound the Dharma the first time, and uh, I thought, oh, I could teach that. I really, That's really good stuff. I like I liked that. Uh, I was really moved by the teachings. So I went on a retreat with Sylvia, th- first a three-day retreat. Actually, first I taught a retreat with Sylvia before I meditated, but uh, <laughs> uh, but then I went on a three-day retreat, and then uh, which was just for rabbis, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I came back uh, to Spirit Rock for an eight-day retreat, uh, and got very involved in the practice. And one of the things I think in terms of this question of belief is that uh, when you sit here, there uh, there are also beliefs that are taught. The Dharma is a set of uh, conceptual beliefs about how the universe works, uh, at least one aspect of teaching the Dharma. And what I really appreciated here was the relationship between uh, hearing things, hearing beliefs, hearing uh, how a system works and what the philosophy is behind it, uh, which you do for maybe one hour a day. And the other 23 hours a day is direct experience, where you go in, you pay attention. And through the process of paying attention, you see for yourself what's real and what's true and what works, uh, and uh, that impacts on. Uh, it, it takes the the uh, it takes items which begin conceptually in the realm of belief into the possibility of uh, having a different relationship, other than oh, I'm supposed to believe this or this is what they say, uh, and so for me. When I started uh, doing that practice of direct experience that comes along with mindfulness and paying close attention into the present moment, for me, lots of the uh, beliefs that I had learned about in Judaism, which were beliefs, even things that I was already teaching, uh, began to have uh, a a ring of spiritual truth to them from my experience, as opposed to them being beliefs. So in that sense, on one level, the question that is being asked in the uh, in that letter and that others of us ask in, who are in religious traditions, uh, what we, what I found certainly is that uh, practicing in this way, learning how to pay attention directly uh, in each moment, has uh, has augmented my uh, religious practice because things have moved out of the realm of belief and into like, oh, this is the truth of how things are. And now I come from a uh, a particular approach to religion which uh, doesn't cling so heavily to belief, so if uh, uh, if uh, if something comes up and you start bumping up against a belief that doesn't seem to be true, uh, at least in the uh, within the wing in Judaism that I work, uh, beliefs change you know beliefs are not uh, set in stone, so to speak, uh, even though some things were set in stone, <laughs> like the Ten Commandments so. And it's certainly been the case, in my experience and uh, from my understanding of history, that uh, uh, not, every, uh, not every person and not every uh, school within Judaism is this open. But, but generally, if you look at the trend in Jewish history, uh, Jewish beliefs have changed immensely over time. That I think it's one of the strengths of Judaism as a religion, that, it, that it's an evolving religion. So the, the, the basic core beliefs uh, are somewhat flexible. Uh, you can play with them, uh, but for, but for me it was the experiential piece that was really important uh, to have a deeper uh, 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 a deeper pra- deeper more meaningful practice uh, rather than trying to hold on to beliefs the uh, The thing I thought I'd share as a teaching and then I'll, then maybe we'll really open it up is because uh, um, I think it's sort of an inevitable question when you start thinking about what's being taught in, uh, in Vipassana and mindfulness uh, here at Spirit Rock uh, and other religious traditions is this question about well, what about God? What about the belief in God? What about that's a pretty core thing in most religions? What about that particular thing? And um, My understanding is that the Buddha uh, uh, put that question in the in the realm of the imponderables. It wasn't that he took a position you know there's no God he said, "This is what you. This is, you can't talk about it. It's beyond. It's not one of the things that one can ponder." But he didn't say there's no God. Uh, and in uh, the Jewish approach that I'm interested in, that I've been learning and studying in, uh, the understanding and the beliefs in God have been evolving uh, um, over the last three thousand years, and have changed radically over that time. So even I, even if I'm going to start doing a thing, start saying, sharing with you some. Uh, some conceptual material about God, you should know that uh, this is not the same conceptual material that that Jews would have shared 3,000 years ago when they, when they talked about God. The uh, tradition I like to draw most heavily off of these days is, uh, was, was, is only about 300 years old in the Jewish tradition. That's a, uh, a teaching that was first really promulgated by the Baal Shem Tov, who uh, means the master of the good name. He was the founder of uh, what is, what's called Hasidic Judaism. Uh, he was the originator of that uh, way of practicing. And the Baal Shem Tov uh, promulgated a, a core teaching about God that everything is God and nothing but God, which was a very heretical thing to say at the time uh, he lived. That, that was not the normative way of understanding the divine. So that's already an example of, of uh, how these beliefs now he's talking about God, but it's not the same God, because uh, now he's have a whole different concept, conceptualization. So, uh, working off this position, everything is God nothing but God, which is a teaching I had learned uh, of the Bao Shanto before I came to this meditation practice. Uh, uh, in entering the... Uh, in, in, uh, in learning mindfulness and really uh, coming on retreat and then developing my my practice of paying attention moment to moment, uh, I started I started moving into uh, appreciating that teaching. Even I always liked that teaching, but appreciating it, appreciating it in an experiential sense. So I want to do one exercise with you, one, one sort of ex, ex, uh, explanation about uh, how one might work with that and how how you could see uh, a whole different way of working with a, a conceptualization of God that perhaps. Uh, fits more into things we've all been learning here when we when we practice mindfulness. So, so I, uh, in order to do that, I want to quickly show you uh, uh, the basic name for God and uh, sort of the most holy name for God in the Jewish tradition. So I wrote that on this piece of paper that you have. So, and I, I used the Hebrew letters because they're going to be important. I'll try to do this as briefly as I can. But the most holy name in the Jewish tradition for for God... Is a four-letter name, and four letters in Hebrew. The letters are yud, hey, vav, and hey. So they're the dark black letters on that piece of paper, and they're written from top to bottom. And uh, so I wrote the name. I wrote the letter next to it is the name of the letter. So you'll see there's a the word yud is next to the first black symbol on the top, and then the consonantal sound it has in English is like y. So yud is like y, hey is like the sound h, vav is like the uh, v in English also works as a vowel but uh but when it's not when it's as a consonant it 's like v and then the letter hey again. One of the amazing things about working with Hebrew is that Hebrew is a very, very ancient language, and so it uh, uh, it tends to capture the Hebrew letters themselves, the shapes of the letters and the names of the letters. Because it's so old, because it harkens back to when human beings conceptually moved uh, into speech and then moved into writing language, which is not so old. We've only been writing for about the last 4,000 years. Uh, but, uh, but because the Hebrew alphabet is so old, comes out of one of the earliest forms of writing, uh, the letters themselves capture, uh, have symbolic meaning besides in ways that A and B and C don't because they're further derivatives of, of concepts. But, and so the letter he, if we, if we look at the letter Hay in the divine name, a Hay is the sound, the sound of breath. And, uh, but the letter Hay appears twice in that name, because the sound <laughs> is also the sound of breath. And uh, so it's possible then to conceptualize that this holy name for God has something to do with breath. That's has to do with actually the sound of breath. And uh, the mystics uh, in Judaism taught, made this connection and, and talked about how the letter Yud, which is the first letter then, uh, the top letter on that piece of paper, uh, the mystics said that Yud is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's, it's the smallest thing you can draw. Sort of like represents a point. But a point you can't even draw. A point has no dimensions in time and space. So the next thing, best thing you can do is is make a little thing, a jot. So the word jot and the word yod are the same word. That's that where it comes from. Uh, I, iota in Greek, Jat. Uh, and uh, yod, yod, iota, yod. So uh, yod represents uh, like a point, which really represents emptiness. And uh, so if the hay is a breath, an in breath and an out breath. So when you breathe out, at the end of the out breath, your lungs get smaller and smaller and smaller. So Yud represents the concept of emptiness in this name. And then you breathe in, could be a hay, And then there's the letter vav, uh, which is the straightest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, vav is also, the mystics said vav is like the spine, because it's the shape of the spine. And when you breathe in, your spine gets a little more erect. Uh, the, the curls get out. So yud and vav is the straightest letter and represents fullness. So now you have a sense, if you link that to this name, that it's not just a name. It's a, Placeholder for the concept of empty in, full out, uh, which is a vastly different way of understanding God than the uh, than the certainly the metaphor most people grew up with in the Jewish tradition and other traditions as well about God as God is some king. That's vastly different than God is the process empty in, full out. Uh, so. You, So if we were going to do this longer, conceptually, we'd actually you could you could work with that for me. You could actually try to uh, go into silence, be with the breath. So when, when I first sat down, I, I actually knew this particular form of seeing how what yudhe vavhe means. So uh, when I first learned mindfulness meditation, and the instruction was to pay attention to the arising and passing of the breath, I thought, oh, yudhe vavhe. You know, uh, so from my from day one, I sort of had that overlay on how I was understanding. Uh, and that it's more than just the breath coming in and out. It's, it's really pointing how everything is impermanent. Everything turns and cycles. And to just take this one metaphor even more deeply, uh, when, uh, in the story in Genesis, when uh, human beings are created, there's two creation stories in Genesis. Chapter, Genesis chapter 1 is the one of the six days and the seventh day God rested. And then in chapter 2, it starts all over again, gives a new story of the creation. And the second story of the creation talks about the creation of human beings. And when, uh, when God, so to speak, yod wanted to create uh, human beings, it says, God, breathe into the dust of the earth. Then you could ask, uh, was that an in-breath or an out-breath? <laughs> so just a matter of perspective. So from the earth's, the ground's perspective, it was the, the first in-breath. And from perhaps the God's perspective, it was an out-breath. But what it's really saying is that uh, there is no in-breath without an out-breath. There's no empty without a full. And so this name is also really teaching that everything in the universe inter-is. That's a term borrowed from Thich Nhat Hanh. But, uh, but that's really what's being hinted at in this name. So not only is it the cycle of empty in, full out, but, uh, but as we breathe out carbon dioxide, the plant kingdom is breathing in the carbon dioxide, and giving off oxygen, we're taking it in. So it's a way of saying everything exists in reciprocal reality with everything else that exists. That's what you'd that's what God is. That's one way of understanding God. And uh, one last teaching now that's on this page, and then I'd love to hear something that just responds to how, how you fit in with that, how that fits with your, you and your work, and the work we do together. So the Baal Shem Tov, who uh, gave this teaching I started with, about uh, everything is God, nothing but God, uh, he uh, he would uh, reinterpret uh, verses in the Torah in the in the Bible. So if you look at the a little farther on the page, there's a verse from uh, from Deuteronomy uh, where it says, "Anochi uh, omed bain yudhe So the literal translation of this verse from Deuteronomy is, uh, "I stood between you and God at that time." So this is a uh, at this point in the Bible, Moses is uh, giving a discourse. This is getting, cl- getting close to the time he's going to die. And uh, he's been the leader of this group of people. So he's, he's sort of reminding them all the things they've gone through together and the teachings. And so he gives a couple of discourses in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last of the five books of Moses, the Old Testament. And uh, he's speaking to the people. And he says, Rem- uh, remember at that time when we stood at Mount Sinai, and I stood between you and God. And he's reminding them about a story in Exodus. In the story in Exodus, this is the part about being set in stone, uh, belief set in stone. In Exodus, we have the story that all the Jewish people supposedly were uh, camped at Mount Sinai. And up until then, Moses is the only one who's, uh, let's say, been awake enough to experience the oneness. But, but that's superimposing now, this later understanding on the text. But... Uh, but the literal sense there in Exodus, so, so the people come, and up until then, Moses has been the one talking to God. But at Mount Sinai, uh, everybody has a direct experience of the divine revelation. And that, the, that's, that story is the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you read that story in Exodus, it's really clear that at some point, uh, at some point in the process, uh, the, the people who are gathered there, uh, it gets to be too much for them. They don't, they're, they're not ready to be that... Uh, that uh, widely expansive, perhaps. So uh, they pull back from the experience and they, and they tell Moses, you go talk to God for us. So he's literally just reminding them. He's, a, the literal sense of the text is uh, quite obvious. Moses is saying, remember that time at Mount Sinai when I stood between you and God? Because you guys left and I stood there. You know, and God was here and Moses here, the people there, so to speak. So that's the literal sense. Now, uh, what... Uh, what most Jews, throughout the thousands of years, have done is uh, never take the, the Torah only only for its literal sense. Uh, um, thank God, <laughs> I mean, don't take it only in its literal sense, because uh, there's a lot of difficult material there. So the Baal Shem Tov also didn't take it in its literal sense. Uh, only, certainly not only. And so he said, "Don't." That verse doesn't mean uh, Moses was standing between you and God. He says. He says it's, uh, it's "Anohi," which is the first word of that sentence, which means I am. The Baal Shem Tov says what it really means is it's this sense of I am. That's what stands between you and God. He takes it right Ooh.
0: so... <laughs> you see this little frisson that goes through the bit of... get it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the Baal Shem Tov makes this point really clearly. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't go on to say there's no self. He's making the point that if you have a sense of self, which we have... Uh, that is what gets in the way of experiencing the oneness so uh, I don't know a better uh, so there are lots of ways one could start to explore the self but I don't know a better way for me of exploring what is this nature of the self uh, than to start paying direct attention to, to watching it really clearly, watch how it forms watch, watch what it is and in so doing uh, at least I've had the experience, I think probably many of you have had the experience, that uh, uh, the, the, the sense of self uh, gets to be uh, seen, becomes some, somewhat more transparent. Not that it completely disappears. Sometimes it moves even from being the subject of the experience to the object. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's possible to rest in awareness. And a sense of self is something that's sort of known from outside, so to speak. And so, for me, with that kind of translation and saying this is what uh, this is what I mean by God, uh, uh, then it's possible to uh, uh, to say that if if it's not the self, what's left? I mean, when when the sense of self disappears, what's left? So you can call it God. You don't have to call it God. But I've been particularly drawn. That's the last thing I'll say, and we'll. Uh, I've been particularly drawn to see that same teaching I sat with Ajahn Semedo last May in England, on a retreat, and he pointed out a a text from the sutta that I hadn't heard before that that goes, because there is the unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, and unconditioned, it's possible to awaken here in the realm of the born, the created, the formed, and the conditioned. uh, Jewish mystics use almost exactly that same language. So there's the four letters in God's name that I pointed out there are often referred to, almost, almost with the same words, as the, the born, the created, the formed, and the conditioned. That's what each of those four realms are in the four worlds. And then there's this place that's, not, that's unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. I mean, you, you can't use conceptual language to describe it. All you can say is what it's not. Uh, which was a, also a central teaching in Judaism. Uh, Maimonides, the great philosopher, said, "You can't say anything about God. You're going to say what God's not." But that particular formation was the same: uh, the unborn, the uncreated, unformed condition, on the one hand, and then these four realms on the other hand. And uh, this material I had been working with in the, from a Jewish mystical perspective, and uh, there it appears directly in the Buddhist conceptualization as well. So I've been I've been working with that a lot lately, and. Uh, and so part of what we teach together, we teach when we teach together in the Jewish world, we teach four different ways of paying attention, uh, which uh, also relate to these four letters. But they are it's almost identical to the four foundations for mindfulness. So we pay attention to to body, to feelings, to what happens in the in conceptualization, and then uh, and then just to the truth itself, how it manifests. Right, so those, those are some initial thoughts about. Uh, Making a bridge into the religious world and in particular with some God
0: language. Bravo, I really enjoyed that. Did you enjoy that? <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I thought that was great. And, um, among other things, I thought it was great. You did that beautifully, I thought. Um, I also particularly noted you're probably, because I look for these kinds of, I, uh, it's probably my own ego. I love to think I'm the first person in history who. I think you're the first ra- person in history who, being a rabbi, say, could say, I was sitting with Arjun Semedo in England last summer. <laughs> not too many people. I've done that.
1: <laughs> I said, actually, at the end of the retreat, I was talking to him, and I, uh, he, he said, you're a rabbi. How come you're here? I said, well, I'm sure I'm not the first rabbi who's ever come here. He said, no, you are the first <laughs> rabbi ever come here. <laughs> but, uh,
0: so I think that, uh, I, I, I'm i going to let other people ask questions because, uh, you know, I know you. Uh, but I think particularly the one line that really um, caught my attention early on is you said, uh, you know, in my first retreat, I, uh, oh, you, you were talking about... Um,
1: mm-hmm, well, belief and experience? Or?
0: Belief and experience, but you were talking about... Uh, Oh, you were saying what? Yeah, at one point, you asked me what is what's the cognate expression for in uh, out empty info out empty info, and uh, and you had quoted Thich Nhat Hanh in between as saying interbeing Inter-in. interbeing. I was thinking also from the Zen tradition, form is emptiness and emptiness is form, that it's all in dynamic flux together and no separation. Also, your teaching on non-self was very. It's the other part of interbeing that they, you know. That, 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 uh, there, is, there is a Jeff and there is a Sylvia, but there isn't a Jeff or a Sylvia independent of everything else that's going on. Just as the plants and animal life are giving each other artificial respiration, that everything is in dynamic interbeing with everything else. There is only one one. But at, at, all through it, I think, and this is what I, I, I was thinking about—if other people had thoughts about—that uh, you said the very first time I heard people say X, I realized, oh, that's your Vave. What was it that you said that they said? Well, X? Breath,
1: rest the attention on the breath.
0: Yeah. Uh, and Then you said, oh, okay, that's yidah vove, and I and I was thinking the question of when people. Uh, of having a context in there. We don't know we have a context in there, but we each of us have a context. in. Uh, we have we are made up of context. I think, just as you said, Judaism has evolved, evolved so much over the last 3,000 years. One of the things that has changed as the human context around human beings who are Jews is we have very much, we have, first of all, had a scientific revolution, and we understand how old the earth, is, in term, we, we have geologists, we have psychologists, so, and neurologists, so we know, we have, I, I think actually the principal religion of Westerners in the last hundred years has been science, and, and particularly, uh, and especially in the field of religion, it's been psychology that has so much molded uh, religious practice. So that when you hear something, I think that, or, or encounter something, or understand something, I think my filing system always takes it and files it by reference points that it already knows, like file that vav Vavhe. And maybe the, the only other thing that I want to add to that is you said at one point, here I come with this, not only this religious context, but uh, a certain, uh, the, the words and um, practices that go with it. So that if, I, I'm going to just tell my own experience, I certainly learned, grew up learning to say a blessing before I ate, which I did routinely and without thinking about it very much. And I realized one of the first signs I had that something had changed in me was being on in, on retreat and doing uh, uh, intensive practice for a while. And in the context of sitting down quietly with a meal and looking at it and realizing how really happy I was to be seeing that beautiful meal and how really it was an amazing thing that the meal was here and it was so beautiful and I had an appetite. All those miraculous things have to be there. I mean the most beautiful thing in the world. And not have and be sick and not have an appetite. In order for delight to be present in that moment uh, over the food, the health has to be present. And you think it's a great miracle that in this moment what comes together is health and appetite and food. You know, you know, bravo, look what happened. And at that point, you feel like saying thank you very much to whatever is... You know, and again, not in a context of someone, but that, it happened. You know, and I, uh, I like, I don't know who it is. Um, I come from a, a, a culture that said thank God a lot. But I often, when I'm teaching use the experience praise be I don't know who I learned that from but I think it's a Christian thing to say praise be isn't it? Why, anybody said praise be and they're growing up anybody? It's, a thing. it's a Christian thing but then it, it avoids the whole thing about you know who's God, my God, your God which God, praise be this is a great but,
1: it, but it's, uh, there's one more thing you should see about this name which is especially if you don't know the Hebrew and you don't know the, this name because I mean, it relates to saying praise be but the Hebrew is a A language has words have three-letter roots. So there's three letters that compose the root of the word, and Yud isn't one of them. So in in that four-letter name, Yud is a prefix. There's the other three letters are the root word, and the root word in that name is the verb to be. Like the most holy name for God in Judaism is being, beingness. So praise be is also praise God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that praise—that's what that verb is. That's
0: very good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a—it's you know, also a good thing to say in any kind of a context with God, without God. praise be, you know, which means this is amazing, and I noticed it, and I noticed it. So which may which which moves having a blessing practice from the from the uh, from the rote or the cultural or the habitual to the actual alive, and it ma- it makes a difference. What questions would you like to ask Jeff? Goes, is it Okay, um, and, the, and this is the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but he says, "What's life? Breathe in, breathe out. What's death? Breathe out." I think that's a pretty simple definition. <laughs> but anyway, I I call my art show "Mystery Made Manifest" because to me, I have a hard time with the word God, but but just the whole. You know I mean like I, I can't agree with God everywhere but divinity is everywhere it's just miraculous it's so awesome i mean that's that's what I consider um, a mystery mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah I mean the explanation I was giving as a try to, was as a way of trying to say let move we want to move away from God the concept yeah. uh, into God the experience uh, um, and it's very much uh, uh That's why my friend David Cooper wrote a book, God is a Verb. It's very much a process theology. It's it's the unfolding, not the unfolder, per se. Uh, But we have a relative sense of... of, uh, One of the nice things about uh, Jewish mysticism and a Jewish meditative approach, uh, not that I don't think it happens in the Vipassana world as well, but uh, working with this teaching, everything is God and nothing but God. So, So manifestations of the self... Is one more divine expression. So it's not. It's not about getting rid of anything. It's about oh, how is the, how is the self also some sort of divine expression? What am I supposed to do with? How am I supposed to recognize this self as, as also, in some way, part of the God? At the same time as it's uh, as you know that uh, emptiness is form and form is emptiness, so, which is a paradox. But uh, but the form part is also God. Not not it's not any less God than the unformed part.
0: And the mind states of, that we think of that actually constitute the self. You know? You're sitting in the most expansive way and uh, uh, completely at ease. Maybe you're sitting here and you're completely at ease and sitting on one of the benches and looking at the trees. and There's nothing but pleasure present in the mind and no particular sense of me or you or this or that, just the mind at rest. And suddenly the bell rings for lunch and all of a sudden there's a thought that says, uh-oh, I'm at the top of the hill, already there's people are down there, I'll be late, maybe they'll get the best stuff. The self has made an appearance in the form of greed and uneasiness and distress and personal need, and I wonder if they're going to have broccoli again, which they don't like. And, you know, the, the, the self. And, but that's also, and to be able to see it as you do in meditation, certainly what we teach is that's not a bad thing to have it's not that anybody's mind is naughty because it does that, it just does that and uh, (laughs) one of the big things that comes up in people's meditation practice is that they see not only you know they're going to have broccoli again fully but uh, (laughs) ignoble thoughts like I'm noticing that that person took a huge amount of food, look at that that Attitude that was very greedy of them, you know. And noticing ignoble thoughts, you know, if we could get up in the morning and plan only to have noble thoughts and no self serving thoughts, that would be great. But the mind machine makes every kind of a thought. And to be able to really recognize it and hear it in yourself and say, look at that, you know, uh, uh, there's probably. if I, were going to, if I were going to teach that particular thing, I, I, that particular truth about the human mind and its uh, extraordinary um, versatility in how it expresses itself, I might think of the line that says, uh, how are you going to translate, uh, how, how, great how great you are, you are God, God. Yeah. how manifold are your designs, yeah. uh, how amazing your creations, you yeah, human beings are amazing. Uh, what else do you want to ask? There you go. So we've been working with Donald about meta practice, and I think most of us have probably done that with Sylvia. So it's interesting. Like this, just looks like some kind of tag on at the bottom, but it was what we were doing in you know, the last number of weeks. So does that relate to your practice already as a rabbi? Or I was just yeah. Well, this is how that ended up on the bottom of the sheet. But uh, that's what we've been sort of doing
1: right that's that's a that's a i learned uh, i learned metta practice from sylvia originally uh, and uh because i was um, because i was a rabbi because i was teaching uh mindfulness meditation in in the jewish world uh basically whatever whatever practice i learned uh here and at other in other vipassana places uh, i said is there a way to do that that would have a slightly different resonance uh sort of keep the keeps keep the the uh, wisdom of the practice intact and add a resonance that will work uh, in the Jewish world so uh, so I created those four phrases but they uh, but they and I particularly brought in this quality of blessing uh which is which would be which is a word not used in when you when you learn metta, but uh which for me then uh invoked a sense of uh, divine partnership in this whole enterprise with the sa- with the model of the divine i 've already expressed uh, so uh, so I sort of converted the meta into a prayer practice, uh, and I use those four phrases, and I teach it with those four phrases and uh, which also uh, to bring this up partly a question you raised at the beginning, one of the things we could address so uh, in addition uh, in the Jewish form, uh, we have uh, we have worked at using prayer as a particular form, uh, a contemplative form. It's, it's close to metta anyways, uh, using words to, uh, to cultivate wholesome mind states. That, so we're, we're working with prayer as a way uh, so that um, as we move in and see what the nature of the self is and what's going on and maybe the mind's grumpy or, or judgmental, uh, after you've worked with that and used mindfulness with that, <laughs> then sometimes it's good. Uh, I think the phrase Sylvia uses sometimes is, "So now you see what's there. Now can you sweeten it up a little bit? You don't have to stay grumpy, you know." And so, uh, so we use, uh, I use a lot prayer. I use those four phrases, uh, and then even prayers from the traditional liturgy, but not thousands of words. Just a few words of prayer, saying them over and over in the mind as a way of conditioning wholesome mind states, which I think is what a, a part, one of the functions of prayer. Uh, but then again, I had the overlay that it's wholesome mindset has, that has something to do with the interconnected oneness of being. Uh, but, but so we use prayer in, a, um, in some ways parallel to metta. Mm-hmm. You are asking about different practices besides... Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I was wondering if anybody here, uh, because we said who was, who was born into... Anybody here has a flourishing uh, religious practice apart from here that is augmented by their meditation practice, other than Susan's. <laughs> yeah. The Society of Friends. The Society of Friends. Yeah. Um, at a Benedictine monastery in the Berkeley Hills. Yeah. Do you go on retreat there? At that big sir. Oh, with Brother David. Uh-huh. Yeah. <coughs> There's a way in which I sometimes have the, 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 the concept, the thought, Now I'm going to start that sentence again. I've had the experience of uh, coming together with, other, with uh, a, a, diver, a diverse population of people, different religious traditions, talking about contemplative practice. And uh, what's been really confirmed for me is that if we speak about our practice on the level of what's happening, and we're, uh, every, everything is happening the same, people uh, are aware of the... Uh, people who do a contemplative practice, which is always being in touch with this moment in a, uh, in a way that uses a heightened, cultivated awareness, will report a kind of ease in their body, uh, physical changes in their, in their body, changes in their minds how they feel, the arising of insights, a clarity of understanding about how to live their life uh, a sense of gratitude for their lives Those are all, and that, that actually isn't parochial talk, that's stuff that we all understand from each other, if I say to somebody I feel such delight when I look around and I see that once again in February the same crocuses are blooming at the exact right time and they knew how to do it and delight arises in, in in me. Everybody knows what that means. It's not a religious thing to say. It's just a thing thing to say, and that uh, the next level up from the awareness, the direct awareness, is the level of uh, understandings that I have from the direct awareness. So they say, if somebody said, "What do you what do you trust?" I, I try not to say, "What do I believe?" What do I trust? So I trust. That there's a really, as Susan said, a magic to how the how things work. You know, that way bigger, as Jeff was saying, that, than I could possibly understand. But magically, those crocuses know when to come up, and magically, I went to a baby naming last night, and magically, those twins look like their parents. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, they don't look anybody like anybody. You know, that's a, there's a certain magic about life unfolding itself. So that there's a level at which I can say, uh, not only I, I, I trust that there is a magic in life experience if I pay attention to it, and by paying attention to the magic in life experience, I am supported in being able to also face the challenges in life experience. You know, when we talked before about who we thinking about, this one, that one, this one, that one, who's sick, who's in the middle of leaving this world. If we only, If I only saw that, that would be really... I can't imagine a life where I only saw that because I see that a lot, but to be able to see, look at this. These babies came out with fingernails. They're so <laughs> small. and They have fingernails and eyelashes, and the right number of everything. We were we were speculating how big the gallbladder is in those babies. Gallbladder <laughs> oh, looks very very little. Can you imagine a miniature gallbladder, but they've got one. <laughs> that there's there's a certain way of tuning into the delight and being buoyed up and grateful for the delight. On top of that, there, which we could all share, we all have the same language, just I like trust, that life is a doable experience and one that we could celebrate. Up on the next level is depending on where I got born and into what culture and in what language they spoke and what tradition they <coughs> came up, they have different cultural ways of saying praise be. and But here we we are we're up here, and traditions and uh, stories that make the point of that, like a Genesis story or any other kind of Genesis story in any other lineage of how the world came into to be. Because anywhere that people are saying, praise be that there's a world, they make up a story about how it happened that world, and they make up a history. And one level up from that, they sing about it. So by the time you get up to the songs, they're singing different songs. And on the level, if we all sang our songs, we annoy each other. Because they tend to say my song is the real true way, <laughs> but if we go down two levels, we're all speaking the same. Is that a reasonable thing to say?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's definitely a reasonable thing to so say. That's why uh, I I get delight when uh, when I notice that in different. So when I heard Ajahn Sumedho use those same four terms. Uh, that I've been using from the Jewish mystics. It's like, oh, there's a delight in there.
0: You know what? Where I had that same delight the first time that I read in the mindfulness sutta that you could practice this uh, sitting down, standing up. Uh, wait a minute. Lying down, stand no. Lying down, sitting, standing, or moving around.
1: Right. Kind of left, left when you sit, there. when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie it down, when you rise up. Yeah. It's,
0: Do you know those lines from Deuteronomy? Me. Yeah. No, and, uh, um, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day, teach them diligently to your children as you sit near, as, you, as, wait,
1: Speaking of them, as you,
0: as you, as you, as you, as you, as you, walk, uh, walk as you, I can't remember the order. <laughs> speak of it's them in as In English ye- it's hard. In yeah, Hebrew yeah. it's easy. <laughs> okay. As you,
1: as uh, you. <laughs> as you, as you uh, sit in your house, as you walk by the way, as you lie, lie down, down, as and you, rise you
0: rise up. So you have the same four postures. And I, and the first time they said you could do the sitting, standing, lying, or walking around, I thought, ah! But I had to have that background in my mind. If I hadn't had that written in the context, I wouldn't have heard it in the instruction. Like you would not have heard the Yudhe heh in that instruction. Susan? Here I am. Hi, I, I mean I am here but I am present. Oh, so he you heard yep. that that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm gonna go out, you talk, I'm gonna go get one of your books so we can wave it around and talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Jeff brought you presents and just on this point I wanted for it to uh comment it because <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean that's the 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 mystics for sure. The mystics within every religious tradition are very close to each other. So um, um, my main Jewish teacher, uh Zal Mishak Shalomi, also also trained with with Brother David and with and with the Benedictines and uh, is, an, is an ordained Sufi Sheikh as well. So he he sort of checked out all the different uh, <laughs> paths, and uh, and so the mystics are because the because the mystics are pointing. To uh, unitive experiences, so there's only one kind of unitive experience. That's what it means. Uh, oneness is oneness. So, you know, it comes in different flavors of oneness. But uh, so it, uh, it says in the Talmud, also that uh, that uh, it says lots of things in the Talmud. But so, but when you want to make a point, you pick the one you want. But it says in the Talmud that uh, God's seal is truth. So if you want to know how, if you want to know God in the world, anytime you see truth, that's God. So then I sat with Ajahn Sumedho, and he, and uh, in May, and he's saying, he's saying, uh, uh, don't think of the Buddha as a as a person. Bu- Buddha represents awakened consciousness, and Dhamma represents the truth. So Buddha and Dhamma, all you're taking refuge, is, refuge in is awakened attention to the truth of the moment. Uh, and, the, and God's Torah is truth, so it's all God. But it's a, there's only one kind of awake, seeing clearly, and uh, and the truth is the truth, you know. And even that's somewhat conceptual, but not that we can know the truth. I mean, we, we get the best that we can with our conceptual thinking. Then later we realize that concept wasn't as accurate as we thought sometimes. But So I wrote uh, the a, 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 a book, so you will show you. I, I wrote sort of uh, like the k- kinds of teachings I share today. I sort of did that with each. In, in each arena, there's a, a chapter on God and how to uh, what the these four levels could be, and there's a chapter on the nature of mind, and chapter on uh, sort of the chapter I did, which would be parallel to the five hindrances, that the things that get in the way of seeing clearly, uh, from a Jewish point of view, sometimes called the evil inclination. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's a way of understanding that from a Jewish point of view that sees uh, oh this is just uh, it's just uh, there's one there's a certain we have an inclination. The inclination is, if it's nice, we go for it, and if it's unpleasant, we push it away. That's that the inclination
0: familiar, anybody here, by the way.: <laughs> That's
1: the only inclination there is. If you know it works like that, it can become the good inclination. If you don't know it works like that, it, becomes, it pushes you unconsciously into the evil inclination. So there's a whole chapter on that, how to
0: work with that.: uh. <coughs> Hallelujah. You want to talk about hallelujah? That's praise God. Which is your favorite thing to read out loud? What do you like that sounds good? I mean, it all sounds good, but what do you like to read out loud so that people like to hear? Jeff, by the way, has brought all of these books. He's got a lot more out in his car, and they're gifts for you. They actually have a price on them. In a store, they're $19. But in the spirit of Donna, because we are a spirit of Donna place... And the monks always give out their books as presents. He uh, has a pile of them outside and would uh, be glad to have you to taking it as a present and would be glad to have you leave him some Donna in the basket if you want. There's an
1: envelope in the book too, so if you want to mail something at a later point you know, when you go home, you can do that as well.
0: What do you, What would you like to read so they hear you? Well, they heard you, but...
1: I'm going to bring my glasses. Well, tell to me. I'll read it. Yeah, read the story about Zalman here, about the sh- Zalman and Shalvi. Oh,
0: I'll read the story about Zalman and Shalvi. They've heard it from me. If They've say. heard it? Yeah, yes. but not everybody. Tell to me. These might work. These are just reading glasses. These might work. I'm just yeah. readers. Well, I just
1: have to find the story
0: now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it be right near the beginning.
0: You know, it's very serendipitous. How did this all happen? I got yeah. invited... Um, In 1993, to a conference of uh, rabbis and and meditation teachers in Barry, and I met my friend Sheila Weinberg, and uh, we got to be friends, and uh, we got to start to teach um, meditation weekends at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is where you came on retreat, and... um, uh, Oh, um, mm, mm, mm. Uh, let me think of the connection. What's the connection to Rachel? Uh,
1: Charles Halpern.
0: Charlie Halpern came to that conference because he, he was interested it. in that. He paid for it. I mean, He, he paid for it. Or it, it was <laughs> the, the Cummings Foundation. Uh, it was the Cummings Foundation was interested in the fact that many Jews were studying Buddhism. The Cummings Foundation paid for the conference. Charlie Halpern, who was the director of the Cummings Foundation, came. He wrote a letter, uh, copied to me and to my friend Rachel Cowan, who was the director of Jewish grants for the Cummings Foundation, and to Nancy Flam and Amy Eilberg, who at that point were the Jewish Healing Center in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. saying, Sylvia and Sheila are really interesting teachers. You should know about them. And so Sylvia and Sheila started to teach, and Jeff came, and one then another thing happened, and... A lot of teaching has happened from there. This is a story I'm reading. This is Jeff, but I'm reading because I have my glasses. Uh, oh, look! I'm going to start I was going to start over here. Are you a mystic? Are you a mystic? Mysticism is generally defined as a direct experience of the divine. I taught various components of Jewish mysticism for ten years before I was exposed to a serious meditation practice. It was through my experience of mindfulness meditation retreats that I understood from the inside what mystics are looking for. I found meditation to be the most direct path to the mystical component of spiritual experience that I had been seeking. It allowed for what Reb Zalman, this is Rabbi Zalman Schachter Shalomi, called domesticating peak experiences. There had been many small moments of awakening in my journey before I began practicing meditation but working on the practices described in this book allowed me to deepen my own understanding through direct experience of what the Jewish mystics were teaching. The insights they describe are part of our inalienable rights as sentient beings. When we awaken to our own light, it becomes possible to develop real wisdom about our life, as wisdom allows us to see clearly our hearts break open with compassion for the struggles of our own lives And the lives of others, awakened with wisdom and compassion, we are impelled to live our lives with kindness, and we are led to do whatever we can to repair the brokenness of our world. Mm -hmm. How blessed I have been to have had the privilege of traveling around the world with Reb Zalman. How blessed I have been to meet people with a similar yearning for spiritual awakening as myself. Most likely, you are such a person. It's an exciting journey, and I invite you to share it with me. A story Reb Zalman frequently told as we traveled the circuit involves his youngest daughter, Shalvi, who was about five years old at the time. One morning, Shalvi woke up and said to him, Abba, which means father, you know how when you are asleep and dreaming, it seems so real, and then you wake up and realize it was just a dream? When you are awake... Can you wake up that much more and realize that this is just a dream? (laughs) (laughs) So, So. one last question. Go ahead. Um, You should mention that you're going to be at Hakmaha Lab on Saturday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um. Okay, I'm, I'm going to actually speak tonight at Delia Brinton's house, who's the chairperson of the board, I guess, of Spirit Rock. If, yes. if you want to pick up more on this kind of uh, uh, the interface that, uh, between these practices. Uh, and I'm leading an all-day, uh, a, a, a contemplative Shabbat morning service in Berkeley on Saturday morning and, and and in a two-hour workshop in the afternoon. So you're all invited if you'd like to come to that. And then as long as we're on that, so so Sylvia has mentioned, we're... <clears throat> We're teaching a retreat with Donald and Sheila and Miriam here. Uh, It'll be a great time to see how these practices come together and really be in uh, silence and, and have a real mindfulness retreat. That's in June. And then Sylvia and I and Norman Fisher and Joanna Katz, my wife, uh, will teach a six-day retreat uh, at Santa Sabina over, th- over the Thanksgiving week. Uh, and in that retreat, we'll actually do a little more uh, Jewish prayer and chanting as well uh, so both of those would be uh, wonderful chances to see how these how these practices come together, uh, at least for those of us who are teaching it in that way.
0: So, so I want, what, what, Barbara? A quick question. Does Buddhism talk about evil? Does it use that word? It does, and especially in the earliest texts, uh, Neonaponika uses it about the roots of evil. Uh. And it'll talk about the greed, hatred, and delusion are usually thought of as the roots of evil. So I think more uh, they turn... It, it, um, uh, I think it's important to think of it not as evil, but the roots of evil, what leads to that. And, the, and it's also called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And greed, hatred, and delusion, the three poisons that poison the mind so that evil manifests are seen to be the result of um, ignorance. So really, the root core of suffering in ourselves and in the world is ignorance. And uh, the antidote, the cure for ignorance is wisdom. And the manifestation of wisdom on this earthly plane is compassion. It's a nice thing to think about. I think it's the essence of really all religious practice. How about if you uh, were going to ring the bell in one minute, why don't you do a meta blessing in a way that's uh, familiar to you?
1: Okay. Before we ring the bell?
0: We'll sit for a minute, you'll make the blessing, and you'll ring the bell.
1: May we in all beings, part of the holy oneness of being, be blessed with peace, that sense of completeness that we call also shalom. And May we in all beings, all part of the holy oneness of being, experience the world with joy, simcha. May we in all beings, all part of the holy oneness of being, have our hearts opened to our own and to each other's suffering. May we be blessed with a sense of compassion. Rachamim. May we in all beings, all part of the holy oneness of being, experience a deep sense of connection to each other, Experience the deep sense of interconnection that we call love. And so we, may we and all beings treat each other with loving kindness, with chesed.